Good morning, Grace family. Uh, so good for you guys to see me. Uh, <coughs> super wish I could see y'all too. Uh, I'm really excited to kick off our new series on Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, before we jump in, though, I want to take a quick survey. Has anyone gotten tired of not being able to get a haircut because of the pandemic and just went for it? Okay, so I literally want you to raise your hands at home if you've attempted this. Now, keep your hand raised if this was a good idea after all. And all the people put their hands down. So I tried it. I disobeyed all the advice on Facebook and Instagram from professional hairstylists. And here we are. Israel found themselves in a similar place in the 6th century BC. They were in exile. They were divorced from their land. They couldn't worship the Lord their God. Their hair was getting rather moppish, and they had no access to the barber shop. They were a people in crisis. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of two of the most influential leaders of Israel after the turn from exile in Babylon. Ezra, as we'll see, is the astute teacher, and Nehemiah is the skilled statesman. Both of these men demonstrate a profound trust in God's faithfulness, as they serve and lead God's people during a time of incredible crisis. And your ears ought to be perking up. Because now more than ever, at least in my lifetime, these books hold direct application and parallel for us. They're stuck in a foreign land. They're homeschooling their kids. They can't get to church. They are in crisis. Well, how did they get there? It's a really long story, and, and for the purpose of this sermon in particular in the rest of this sermon series, I'd like for us to think of this as a TV series. Now, I know most of you have finished Netflix already, and you've gone to books, which is great, but try and remember what watching a serial is like for this sermon. We're jumping into season seven, but we need to go back about two millennia for this season to make any sense. Previously on Lost. You guys remember that? One of the best series ever, ever. So we're jumping into season seven, and I want us to recap. Previously, on the history of the people of God. Season one, Abraham. God is passionately pursuing a people to be in relationship with him and represent his love to the world. He's chosen by God to father a people to represent him to the world. A city on a hill to display the goodness of Yahweh. He heads off towards the west because God said so, and the promise of God starts to bear fruit. His family starts to grow. Then in season two, Joseph continues to carry God's promise, but because he's got a really slick outer coat, probably a Gavinci or Ferragamo, he's sold into slavery in Egypt. And what was meant for evil, God uses for the good, and Joseph saves his own family and the nations from famine. Then in season three, we have Moses. The people of God are in Egypt as slaves. God raises up Moses within Pharaoh's household to battle the smoke monster. Oh wait, no, sorry, that's lost. He calls him out of royalty to save and lead the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. Then after the Red Sea, God gives them the law to keep people in right relationship with him and one another and the tabernacle to enable people to enjoy God's presence and receive forgiveness from sin through a sacrificial system of worship. 
And then lastly, God makes a covenant with Moses and the Hebrews. Exodus 19. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. They were to be God's representatives to the world as they obeyed blessing would follow. Then we see in season four, Joshua leads God's people into the promised land, but then this is followed by a succession of judges who govern God's people for about 400 rebellious years. Then we get to the kings in season five. David, the greatest king in the new monarchy, is followed by a succession of mostly unrighteous kings, and God eventually judges Israel for her sin, and she is carted away into exile. Then in season six, God sends prophets to speak to his people as a means of communicating his love for him, for, for them, and his desire for them to be a people that obey and enjoy the blessings that come with that. And in each of those seasons, we see repeated cycles of disobedience and the consequences the, the Hebrews had to pay because of it. And at its core, relationship with God and his love are what's rejected. Jeremiah chapter 2 tells us this in spades. Verse 2. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Verse 5. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far away? Verse 7. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve said it, the Israelites said it, and we still say it today. God, who you are, and what you've provided for me are simply not enough. I need to secure my own future, my own provision, and my own happiness. Okay, so we are all caught up now. It's currently 539 BC. Babylon has just been conquered by the Persians. The people of God find themselves in three crises. Number one, there's a crisis of place. Number two, there's a crisis of worship. And lastly, there is a crisis of conflict. Q. Cyrus, the Persian king. Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, 
the God who is in Jerusalem. And may their God be with them. Incredible. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So Cyrus is doing really well in his first 100 days in office. He's overthrown Babylon. He's inherited all of her subjects. But the Persians are way more lax than the Babylonians were. Not only did he allow the exiled people of God to return to the promised land, he even helped pay for it. The prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that the people of God would be captive for 70 years in Babylon, beginning with King Nebuchadnezzar. And that at the end of those years, Babylon would be overthrown, and this prophecy is coming true right before their very eyes. You see, the people of God have been in exile or under foreign rulers and dispersed for over 180 years at this point. The northern kingdom fell to Assyria in 722, and Judah, the southern kingdom, was deported in the early 7th century. So prior to Cyrus's edict, the people of God were not in the land that their ancestors were given. They were isolated culturally and physically from all that was familiar, historical, and distinctly them. They were wondering where God was and why he wasn't protecting them. Sound familiar? Like right now, we're, we're not able to go to the places that we typically go. We've lost a good deal of our freedom. Some of us have lost our jobs because of social isolation and this virus. We're isolated people. Every business is now a startup. We're frantically trying uh, to learn new roles. We're having to adapt at a rapid clip. Every pastor in America has become a televangelist in the last four weeks. The world is being shaken right now. We're searching for something to hold on to, and people are asking tons of spiritual questions. We don't know when it's going to end, but take heart because God knows, just like he did in the sixth century. So in episode one of season seven, when hope was gone and the future seemed bleak, we see God being beyond favorable to the Israelites. He used a pagan king to bring his people back home. Their crisis of place is solved. Now to their second crisis, a crisis of worship. Their place of worship had been destroyed many years before. The temple was the very place where God's presence dwelled. So when they were in exile, they could not worship. They couldn't practice their religion or show their devotion because they didn't have access to the temple. They weren't able to hear the Bible read to them. They weren't able to celebrate the festivals or offer sacrifices. But now they are back in the land, and so they moved to put their priorities in the right place. Worship first, Ezra 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Nuna, and his fellow priests, and Z, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. Listen to this. In accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So the altar was the physical representation of the spiritual exchange between the penalty of sin 
and the forgiveness of God. Or another way of putting it, between the price of disobedience and the grace of God. They haven't had this representation for seven decades, so building the altar is a humongous deal. Then in verse 4, they reinstate the festival of tabernacles, which commemorates the exodus from Egypt. By verse 6, the altar is finished, and they begin worship in earnest. We see twice in this section that it's all in accordance with the law of Moses, which proves that they're no longer handling the law lightly. They're going back to the source. Ad fontes. Then by verse 10, the foundation of the temple has been set, and the priests and Levites lead the people in a great shout of praise. Psalm 106 and 107 is in view here. They were finally seeing progress towards getting their worship back. But in verse 12, not all were so happy. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept. They wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. So there's some debate as to why they're mourning. It was likely smaller than the earlier temple. But even if it were the same size, it just wasn't the same. The temple was yet to be built. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the heavenly manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the divine Shekinah was not present. Yes, they were back in the land. Yes, they had an altar. Yes, they had celebrated a festival. But it was nothing like it had been. I mean, this is right where we are, guys. Sure, we can still have church, but it's not the same. There's a grieving that we're going through. As much as all this tech that I can see is helping, it's just not the same. Sure, we can text the peace instead of hugging, but there is a great loss there. We're left wondering if we should be singing with Joel and the band from home while our kids are screaming. Communion out of a box? Once a month? I mean, I'm preaching to a canon lens at this very moment. It's not the same, and we're experiencing both 11 and 12, those verses, verses 11 and 12 simultaneously, right? We're overjoyed to be able to worship during this pandemic, but we're also grieving at the same time. And that tension that you feel, that tension that I feel, means that you're human, and so hold on to it. Let it sit. So at the end of episode two, we see that the people of God are back in the land. They've begun the process of restoring their worship, but they have another crisis to deal with, a crisis of conflict. And if you're reading along with the screen, you'll notice that we've changed kings here. There's a ton of history to wade through, but the high-level events, the 30,000-foot view is this. In Ezra chapter 4, we see opposition and slander coming from their enemies. In Ezra 5 through the first half of chapter 6, we see that the work is stopped because of their enemies. Then it begins again. Then a letter is written. And eventually, King Darius gives his blessing. The temple is finished 23 years later. We're going to explore conflict more in future sermons. But as a recap for us this morning, what's important 
to note is that in each of these crises, the people of God find that the favor and grace of God are sufficient for them. With each crisis, there is provision. There's safe travel. There's resources and provisions to rebuild the temple. There's favor from the kings, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. In crisis, they turned to God, and he answered their needs. So some questions for us to ponder during this series are these. What did it look like for them as they began to return, and what will it look like for us? How did God shape and rebuild them into a new people, and how will God shape us through the refining fire of this crisis? What does true renewal look like? We are in crisis right now, family, friends. The difference between now and then, though, is what the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah were pointing towards with the new covenant. Ultimately, our place of worship has not been destroyed because we are the church. God's presence is now within us via the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go to the temple or through priests anymore because we have direct access to God. And let me just say, if you are tuning in, uh, and a lot of this is new information, that's okay. The temple and the sacrifices were pointing to the future in redemptive history when God himself would take the sins of the people upon his shoulders and he would make the final sacrifice. The Apostle Paul called the law a tutor, and it was pointing us to our deepest need. And if you'll allow me, uh, I want to summarize all of Pauline theology in a few sentences. You ready? You aren't perfect. You never will be. You don't have what it takes to please God. But, God sent his son. He sent his son to take your place and he died so that you don't have to. You can have eternal life by trusting in his sacrifice. And as Joel comes back up with the band, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are important. Number one, because they are holy scripture. But especially for us right now, we are in crisis and we have much to learn from the Hebrew people. You see, there is this pattern throughout the Bible. People try and then they fail. They try and they fail. They try and they fail. They try and they fail. And then there are these series of but God statements. But God intervened but God was merciful, but God saved them, but God sent his son. During these uncertain times, friends, let us return to God. Let's allow him to rebuild our lives. And let's open up our hearts so that he can renew them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. 
We thank you that we have your holy scripture that we can read and study and inwardly digest. Lord, and we thank you particularly for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Lord, as we study them over the coming weeks and months, would you allow us to return fully? Lord, would you rebuild our hearts and our minds as we are in the midst of this crisis? Lord, would you renew us continually by your spirit and through your word? And Lord, we are so looking forward to the day when we can gather together again as your people in this place, getting to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us, we pray, Lord Christ.